If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn it with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1, all the way to verse 16. Here's the word of the Lord. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of you, to each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That, my friends, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. This passage of scripture that I've just read for you, it is a passage that centers around the descent and ascent of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we're now in the fourth series, fourth message in a series of teaching about the gospel. What is the gospel is the big question of the whole teaching series. It's a very important question, and we've been addressing that by looking at the journey of Jesus. 
the entire scope of the message of the gospel, starting with his leaving heaven and coming to earth, his descending down into the form of a human born of the virgin birth, his suffering as a human, living the perfect life that you and I should have lived, dying a death on a cross as our substitute, and taking the place for our sins for all who would believe and put their trust in him, and then was buried, descending down into the earth, under the earth, our text says, and then being raised again from the dead on the third day, not remaining on the earth, but then ascending into heaven to the highest position, far above, reigning and ruling. The journey of Jesus. I've called it a, a V-shaped journey from heaven to earth to under the earth, from under the earth to the earth, and from earth to heaven. This is what we mean by the descent and the ascent of Jesus, and hopefully it's not too difficult for you to see why we've chosen this passage of Scripture. We began in the first sermon by asking, what is the gospel and overviewed from Acts chapter 2? In the second message, we looked at 1 Corinthians 15 and saw that the summary of the gospel includes Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection, and then his ascension to reign and rule in the heavens. And then we saw last week in the letter to the Philippians, the central hymn, the poem that's in the middle of that book is not just a summary of the life of Jesus, it's the summary of our lives. A life that is filled with dying and rising, a life of death and then resurrection. And so we should see from last week's message a similar pattern, not only in Ephesians, but really in the life of the church. And what we want to consider in this message is what is the end of Jesus's journey? That question is the title of this message, and it's also the question that prompts the big idea. What is the end of Jesus's journey? And by that question, I mean actually two things. The end as in, what is the end destination? And then secondly, what is the end as in, what is the end goal of Jesus's journey? And the answer to that is found right in our text. If we look yet again, we could get the big idea in one simple summary. Look at, at verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. The answer to our question, both ways you ask the question, what is the end destination? Well, is that he would ascend far above all the heavens. What is the end goal? What is the end goal of Jesus' ascent? Why does that matter? What's the point? That he might fill all things. Let's take both of those answers, both of those parts of verse 10, and let's make sure we understand them. And then let's apply them to the life of our church embassy. In verse 10, it says, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens. What is the destination? What is the end goal? It wasn't just that Jesus would die and rise. That he would rise so that he would reign, ascend into the heavens, far above all things, far above all other places of authority. The really best way to understand the answer to this question, what is the destination into heaven and, and its meaning and significance, is really to just turn your eyes back to Ephesians chapter 1. So, if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to look with me 
At Ephesians 1, as Paul is introducing this letter to a group of Christians in the city of Ephesus, that's why its name is Ephesians, he says that he's been praying for these Christians. And in his prayer, starting in verse 17, you'll see that he's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He prays in verse 18 that they would have the eyes of their hearts to be enlightened, that you would know the hope that is given to you, the hope that you've been called, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And then he wants them to know what more particularly, what is this hope and what is this enlightening that he is praying for? Verse 19, that you would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come what is the end destination of Jesus's v-shaped journey descending down to the earth under the earth, and then back up into heaven. Well, in our passage, in chapter 4, verse 10, it is that he would ascend far above all the heavens. And I believe that that phrase is him just refreshing your memory of what he just said in his prayer in chapter 1. Do you see how it's elaborating or or summarizing what was further elaborated on in chapter 1? Is that he would be raised from the dead, and that he would be far above what? To be in the heavens is to be far above the rule, authority, power, dominion in this age and the age to come. Spatial rule, kingdom rule, dominion, every earthly king, queen, governor, prince, every president, governor, or mayor in the United States or across the world. He is far above ruling and reigning over earthly rulers, those seen and those who are unseen. In fact, this phrase more than likely is not really referring to the rulers of this earth, but rather the dark powers and the rulers of the unseen world. More often than not, when Paul is using this phrase about rulers and dominion, he's talking about this unseen realm, angels and demons and the powers and forces of darkness. And he is saying that all of those forces of darkness that are wreaking havoc, the powers behind the powers. You all hear news headlines and you hear about devastating tragedies in the world. But the Bible wants to continue to press in and say, the real powers are the ones that you can't see. They're the ones that are animating and bringing to life the evil that you do see. And Jesus right now, not only rose again from the dead, but he has ascended into the heavens to rule and reign and have dominion over all powers, all authorities. And that's what it means for him to ascend into the heavens, to rule at the right hand. And so the answer to our question quite simply then is, what is the end? The end destination of Jesus's journey. It is to reign and rule at the father's right hand, to be the king of the universe. So, Is this another text that you could use then to support the first message of this teaching series? Would this be another example to say, what is the gospel? The gospel in its most short technical summary definition is that Christ is king. He reigns and rules over the universe. If you want to just be as concise and as short as possible, what's the gospel, friends? It's Jesus is king. 
But what is the gospel in the more full, robust sense? What are the seven links from this journey of heaven to earth, back up into heaven, and the outpouring of the Spirit? Our text in Ephesians 4, I think, is very much showing us that the God of the heavens, the Father of all, has a plan, a sovereign, eternal plan. This is alluded to all through chapter 1. It is summarized in many ways by what we read in chapter 4. The Father has a plan. That plan is to send his Son, to send him, as summarized by his descent from heaven to the earth. He is going to live the life that you and I should have lived. He's going to die on the cross that you and I should have died. He then is going to descend, as you see in Ephesians 4, down to the lower regions of the earth. Now, at the very minimum, I think that this is referring to his incarnation and then his death and burial into the ground. Christians have all kinds of disagreements. I personally believe this is also talking about that when he was buried, his soul went to what is called the righteous dead, the place of the dead. This is also called Hades or Sheol. This has been taught and affirmed throughout the history of the church for ages now. It's really not until modern days that Christians have started to reteach and rethink this historic doctrine. It's why it's in the Apostles' Creed that we read and will read again this week. You don't need to be a member of this church and agree with me on this point, but I just want you to know that I think Ephesians 4 is saying he descended down and down and down. His very soul went to the place of the dead, and then he was reunited with that soul in the resurrection of his body. He was raised. He was raised to new life. He was a human, and that human did not stay on this earth. After 40 days of teaching and ministry, he ascended into the heavens, and he rose to the right hand of the Father. And when he did that, he poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit. Friends, this is what we've been talking about, about the message of the gospel. In its shortest summary, it is that Christ is king. He's reigning on the throne. But in its fuller, more robust plan, the Father makes a plan. The Son executes the plan. The Spirit applies the plan. And that plan is centered around this V-shaped journey of Jesus, descending from heaven to earth to under the earth, risen again, ascended to heaven, and that brings about the Holy Spirit. Which then brings us to our second question. What is not just the end of the journey? Well, so far, the end of the journey to this point in human history is that God would send Jesus not just to descend to become a man, but ascend, the right hand of the Father. That's the end of the destination. But what's the end in terms of the goal? What's the point? And how does this apply to us? That's what we need to finish out for the rest of this message. What is the end goal And I already read it to you, but we need to figure out what this means. Look again at verse 10. He who who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. That word, that, is telling you the why, the end goal, that he might fill all things. You guys want to know the Greek, right? Play ra'o. It means to fulfill, to fill up. If I have a cup and I'm filling water into the cup, if it's not full to the top, if it's not overflowing yet, well, then it's not plerao. It's not fulfilled. It's not brimming with water to the top. He wants to ascend into the heaven so that he might fill and fulfill all things. All things. What is he filling? And what are these all things? 
Well, do you remember how we figured out the answer of this short phrase by going backwards to chapter one? And guess what? If we do that again, we're going to actually find a further elaboration on the phrase, fill all things. So turn with me again, your eyes or your Bibles, to Ephesians chapter one, and notice the way the prayer ends. He says that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead in verse 20, seated at the right hand in the heavenly places, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. That's the destination. But what's the goal and the purpose? Verse 22, that he would put all things under the feet of Jesus, that he would give Jesus to be the head over all things, and that that then would then continue down to the church, which is his body. And then notice this phrase, the church, which is his body, is the fullness of him who fills all in all. The filling of all things is being explained that when Jesus ascends into heaven, his ascension into heaven and his bodily representation is like the head of a giant cosmic body. That's him. He's the head. His physical body represents the head of what now is going to become a new body. And that new body is a whole bunch of humans that believe and put their trust in Jesus all through the earth. And the plan of salvation is not just for Jesus to die rise again, take away your sins. It is to make a new creation, to make a new humanity, to fill the earth with new humans. It's taking the main themes of Genesis 1 and 2 and saying there was a plan of God and that humans did not cooperate with that plan, but a new human will cooperate with that plan no matter what it takes, even giving up his life. And through that life-giving sacrifice, he will be raised and honored and given the throne, the throne of thrones, the king of kings. And as he reigns and rules and all who are then believing and trusting in him, they get the gift of the spirit so that they can be united. Like there's this direct line of connection between you and God, the father on the throne through Jesus Christ. This is the outpouring of the spirit. That phrase, filling all things, That goal of having the Spirit fill human beings throughout the whole earth makes sense of everything else that's read in Ephesians 4 in our passage. Let me point it out to you. Turn to Ephesians 4 and notice that the center of this passage is the descent and ascent of Jesus. Best explained as we've zeroed in on verse 10, he who descended is the one who ascended far above all things, that he might fill all things. And here's my argument. The filling of all things is the filling of the presence of Jesus through the empowerment of the Spirit of God as the church is established all over the earth. If Jesus does not ascend into heaven, the Spirit will not descend. And if the Spirit does not descend, the world is not filled with the presence of God through the people of God who have the Spirit of God. That's the logic of Ephesians 4. So look again at verse 1 of chapter 4 and notice that everything can only make sense in light of the outpouring of the Spirit of God to make a new humanity and a new people that are centered around the gospel and around Jesus. Verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and there is one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, 
who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. If we pause here and just try and summarize, how do we make sense of what's happening here? He is encouraging them to walk worthy of the calling of the gospel. He's encouraging them to do that with humility, with the fruits of the spirit, gentleness, patience, and love. Eager to maintain the unity. I want to pick that phrase up in, in just a minute. Hold that thought in your head. Eager to maintain, not create. Eager to maintain the unity. And then he explains what that unity is. It's the unity of the Holy Spirit. It's the bond of peace. We're all one in Jesus Christ. One spirit, one calling, one, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who's over all and through all. And there's, there's this all this oneness and unity. And then he says, look, unity is not uniformity. There are various gifts, various types, different people. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Some of us have different gifts and different ways we live out this life in the church. And so that's being contrasted in verse 7 with this. But I do want to acknowledge the gift of the Spirit is not equal in measure or in way. All of us have the Spirit, but it looks different in each of our lives. And then if we follow up in verse 11... Or, or jump down to verse 11, you'll see. And so the gift that he gives, that's alluded to, the gift after the ascension is a gift of apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, when you look at that list and you say, okay, the gift that he gives are people. But what do these people have in common? Number one, we know that the gift is attached to the spirit of God. And number two, we know that the spirit of God inspires these people to speak the word of God. It's the thing that brings them all together. What are apostles? Sent out ones who were commissioned by God himself through the Lord Jesus. Who are prophets? Those who speak God's word. Evangelists? Those who proclaim God's gospel. And then shepherds, teachers, I believe is one category. It's shepherds who teach or shepherd teachers. The way that it's written there, the shepherd teachers. So the thing that unites all of these people, the the main common denominator of this gift is really the word of God. The spirit-filled teaching, preaching, proclaiming of God's word by apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And through that word, they equip, or as some translations or scholars argue, equip could also be mature or perfect the saints for the ministry they do that builds up the body of Christ. And then this brings us back to the unity. This is how the unity of the faith happens, through the word of God, through the people's teaching and preaching. Then mature manhood, the measure and stature of, again, notice the language, fullness of Christ. What does it mean that he would fill all? That he would fill all these people with the spirit of God who are going to proclaim the word of God, who are going to establish churches all through the world, and they're going to fill their lives with Christ-likeness. And therefore, Christ will not just be localized in one space or place. One of the things we need to realize about the significance of Jesus's ascension is that if he rises from the dead and stays on the earth, you and I would not be able to experience the presence of Jesus right now in the same way that we could if he ascended to heaven. In order for the mission of the gospel and the fulfillment of God's plans to function and work the way he designed them to work, 
Jesus had to leave so that his spirit could be poured out as the gift so that his presence is, easy, is, is accessible universally everywhere. Not in the exact same way after his resurrection. It's not as if Jesus left and we can't experience his presence, but it is in a different way. It is through the Spirit's presence, through the teaching of the word, through the gospel's declaration. And this is what builds up the church and makes the church full and leads to the fullness of all. Look at verse 14. And the result of that will be that you'll no longer be little babes and children, immature. You'll be taught and and being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by the winds of doctrines of human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working, properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I really think that it brings it full circle when you think of the first half of this passage, the center being the descent, ascent, pouring out of the gift of the Spirit into human beings. Those human beings speak God's word. That speaking of God's word builds up God's church. That church gets multiplied and spreads over the whole earth. And now the fullness of God's presence can be more experienced than it ever could have in the temple or even in the human body of Jesus but now all over the earth. We just had the wonderful opportunity to hear from Pastor Orlando share about in England right now, there are churches that are preaching the gospel, filled with the spirit of God, multiplying and sharing the good news of Jesus so that the presence of Jesus, if you want to go live in Southampton, we've got a good church for you to attend and you can experience the presence of Jesus. Isn't that glorious? So let's close with a few kind of applicational thoughts of how this might land, especially in light of the fact that we're to be spirit-filled Christians in the local church who are united around the gospel, who are being trained up and built up by the teaching of God's word through the gifts of these officers, these dedicated teachers and pastors, so that then the whole church becomes mature and not being tossed to and fro by the wind It's a nice windy day. It's a good way to illustrate. We don't want these big gusts of wind to blow us around. We want to be solid and firm like an oak tree planted deep with roots in God and his word. So what would that look like? One one thing I want us to think about first would be, what's a wind and a wave of a doctrine that has creeped in to our circles of church? What's something that maybe some of us, as we do life together and we share confession or we We do various activities in the community. What are things that we might see? And I would want to press in a bit and say that one wave of doctrine that we would want to apply in this way is that consumer Christianity, so consumer shopping, we all might know what that means, right? We go to the store and instead of one option, there's 10 options. My wife asked me, can you go to the store and pick up this bottle of something and like, which one? You know what I do now? I, I take out mobile device and I take a picture and I say, here's the options. Can you tell me which one you want? Because I'm always going to come home with the wrong one. Consumer shopping, right? There's all kinds of options. And so we just got to pick, oh, which one do you like the best, darling? Well, that's great for trying to get the right recipe for your, your dinner tonight. It's not great when you're thinking about the church. That consumer mindset is like, 
a crafty doctrine that sweeps through each of our hearts. And it makes it so that when we go around and we try and find a church, what do we call it? Church shopping. And nobody really kind of blinks an eye or thinks, that's a bad phrase. Church shopping, yeah, I'm, I'm shopping for churches. We so assume like, well, of course that's what you would do. You would go around like you're going through the grocery store and you would look through the different options and you would say, well, I like these things, but I don't like these things. I got options and so I'm going to apply this consumerism to the church. One of the things I've observed in the last seven years is that a lot of times people like to go into a church and they wanna see, well, do I like the music? And the style of music, is it one of those things that I immediately just feel like, yeah, this is for me because I like the style of music. And then churches want to cater to this idea, so church leaders then decide, well, what we're going to do is, in order to really grow and, and meet the needs for everybody, we should have options. So we'll do an early morning service, and it's going to have this style of music, and then we'll do a, a later service, and it's going to have a different style of music. Friends, that divides the church. You're intentionally, as a church leader, not being filled with the Spirit of God to primarily say, I want to just give you the gospel in song or in word, and the style could change depending on where you live and the, the, the talented musicians that you do or don't have, you just do the best with what you got. But the purpose being the unity of the church being preeminent, that is not American Christianity. It is about we need to be great and we need you all to not be great. And the we being our church needs to succeed, but we don't want your church to succeed. That's called consumerism from the pastor level, consumerism from the church member level. And that's just music. How about the number of times I've heard people say, you know, I don't really know if I should stay at Embassy Church because there's not enough people that are my age. Does that seem to like rub against the grain of Ephesians 4? Go find a church where you can find enough people that are your age that then will promote the unity of the body. Absolutely not. The unity of the church is rooted in, what was the phrase I asked you to remember? The call of God. Look again with me at God's word and look at chapter four. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with humility and gentleness and patience and bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. Maintaining unity means that unity in the church is not something that we build or create. Unity is a gift that is given because we are unified by the gospel. And the gospel is the thing that brings us together. The gospel is what God does to choose and call and bring you to faith. But instead, we act like Christianity and the church is something that I go and kind of pick and choose as options and think, I like this one, I like that one. And all along, we're undermining last week's message. Christianity is a call to die. The first step of becoming a Christian is to admit, I need this old person to die like Jesus died. I need not just help with my goals and ambitions in this world. And then I come to the church and the church becomes this self-help boost to achieve my goals and dreams. I need to die and become a new person that's united around a new people with a new spirit. So then we maintain the unity and we do it with love and patience 
and self-sacrificial, others-centered humility. Do you see the, the logic of this passage is not very comfortable. The spirit of comfortable Christianity or consumer Christianity is at war with this passage. They do not coexist nicely. Therefore, I would encourage us to not be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine, the American doctrine of consumerism, of taking church and just saying, I want to choose what's best for me, which time the church meets, how it can fit into my schedule. What if that schedule died? What if that schedule died at the altar of the gospel, of Jesus Christ saying, I didn't rearrange my schedule in such a way so that I could keep all of the things I wanted in heaven. No, I descended down to the pit of death. You want to follow me? Then be willing to die and rearrange your whole life around that death. Be united with me in my death because then you will know that you are going to be united with me in my resurrection and ascension and be united to the head. That's the kind of maturity we need. Otherwise, we're little babies and children. We're immature. We're not growing into the fullness of the presence of God. We just look like every other American that just added a little Jesus sprinkled on top. And this is the sort of thing that we need to realize is the powerful outworking of the end goal of Jesus' journey. He did not leave us. He wants to fill us in a more powerful way through the Spirit. One of the things I realized early on is that if we're going to really understand the power of the ascension, it necessarily means that you must care about the Holy Spirit. That whole doctrine of the Spirit has come to new life because I realized, well, it's not just even the ascension. The journey in some ways doesn't stop there. It is only because of Jesus' journey ending at the right hand of the Father that there is now this beautiful journey of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, filling the whole earth as the church grows and multiplies all over the universe to fill all things. That's the end goal. And the only way that's going to happen is if we identify ourselves in self-sacrificial, dying-to-self humility, corporately encouraging and exhorting one another to say, friends, this is what we've signed up for. It's not like this was some sort of thing that Phil snuck in through the back door. Oh yeah, that take up your cross and follow me. Like that's the words of Jesus. That's what he asked us to do. And so we're unifying ourselves around that death and saying there is a wave of doctrine that has infested the American church. And that wave of doctrine, in some ways, could be summarized with comfortability and consumerism. Rather than saying, I don't choose, really, who joins the church. Do you guys think that I, I go around Palatine and I just kind of pick and say, Yep, those are the people I want in my church. No, you guys just come because the gospel's being preached. Isn't that why you're here? Amen, thank you. That's, that's why I hope some of you are here. We didn't do marketing. We didn't do advertising. I did no door knocking. I didn't ask, well, let me hand select the best people that I could and get the right ages and stages. And You're here just because we're preaching Jesus. This is how the church is built up. We don't choose who our church members are. God does. He chooses them. Therefore, if you look at a church and say, well, I don't like those people. I want to find a different people. If they're a gospel preaching church 
that to some degree or another seems to be filled with the Spirit of God, you are slapping God's church, his bride, in the face. And John Calvin says, how can you have God as father if you do not have the church as mother? Do you understand how precious the church is? He died for it. Are we willing to center our lives around Jesus' decent, ascent journey? Put to death our former ambitions of life and say, I've got not just a new spirit within me, I've got now new goals, new priorities, new way of thinking about how to spend my time, ordering my schedule. I am going to join Jesus in what he is doing in the world. Not only because this will in fact be the thing that brings about a life that is uncomparable, even with its suffering, but it will bring about resurrection of life in the life to come and it will give glory and praise and honor to God the Father. I hope I have just kick-started some thoughts for you. I hope that there are more that we can discuss over lunch, more applications for you to flesh out in your walks and talks out the rest of this week. If this message lands and the Spirit blesses it, I believe it'll be because we don't just hear something and then we move on to the next thing, but we let it simmer, we discuss it in our community groups, we meet together over coffee, and we apply this to our church's life, to our individual and corporate. Unity does not mean uniformity. We are diverse and different, and this should apply itself in different ways. And so I wanna encourage us now to pray that God would pour out his spirit on us this week as we try and live out this gospel message and join Jesus in the journey of death to new life. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we wanna come now in the name of Jesus and pray for the outpouring of your spirit. Freshly pour out your spirit upon each of our hearts that we would wanna to put to death the deeds that are destroying our lives, that are making us run around crazy busy because we're trying to have it all, all that the world would offer. And instead realizing that your invitation to come and die is actually an invitation to come and have rest, to take up a, an easier burden and to know that the end goal will bring resurrection and new life in a way that we could never even imagine. Father, I wanna pray that there would be people that are putting to death dreams and goals they've had for their entire life to realize that that was the old man, the old flesh, the old me. For that person exists no more. It has been dead and buried into the ground like Jesus was dead and buried. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will bring about amazing, fruitful conversations in the life of this church and that it will help be a beacon of light in a community that is filled with consumerism the suburban craziness of trying to do all that we can do to achieve and accomplish what the world thinks we should accomplish. Father, I pray, God, that there would be just a breath of fresh new life breathed into our church as we apply this teaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to um, take the Lord's Supper together and... As we do so, we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed, and we are going to reaffirm our faith. And so let's 
grab the elements. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have repented of your sin, died to yourself, and been brought to new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. The message that you just heard today corresponds with, that is me. Some days better, some days worse, but no, that's me. God has called me. He has given me new hope through his gospel and through his spirit. The elements are on the back table if you need to go grab those. Their little bread and cup units are attached here. And the Apostles' Creed should be on the back hand side of the paper or on the online version of the handout that we sent in the email. Let's read those words together and then take the bread and the cup to symbolize our unity in Jesus Christ.